This is a download from Ormskirk Christadelphians of one of our Sunday afternoon talks. For more downloads, go to our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk or join us in person at our meeting room on Moorgate in Ormskirk every Sunday at 1.45pm. We hope you enjoy the talk. Industrially, commercially, economically, militarily and in some ways scientifically. Her Jewish population has gone up more than tenfold and she has also within her boundaries 1.6 million Arabs who when they are left alone by the, the agitators manage to have quite a pleasant life. In many ways the land has flourished and its fertility has increased tremendously. From 1948 to 1964, it's a period of 16 years, the Jews planted 83 million trees in the land and that greatly assisted its fertility. Trees attract the clones. It's a strange balance that more trees attract the clones and it, it helped to create rain and so on. And she became a prolific producer of citrus fruits and similar things. And her technology achievements are considerable and have benefited other people besides herself. And in the last few years, substantial gas and oil fields have been discovered within her territorial water. I know that some of these are disputed, some other people say that's our water, and they may have truth in that. But at the present time, Israel says that's our territory and we're going to have it. They've got a problem with Cyprus and no doubt with Lebanon and the northern part of Syria about whose oil it is. But in economic terms, it would seem that her future is bright. Now that's a quick resume of how Israel has come to exist as she does now. But we can't ignore the solid historical fact that for the best part of 1500 years, from the time they were led into the land of Canaan, as it was then called, under Joshua, Moses' successor, round about 1450 BC, can't be exact on the date, but round about then, give or take a few years, until the time they were exiled by the Romans in AD 70, they were a people living in what became known as Israel. For much of that time, she was independent with their own kings, although the land was divided into two kingdoms about 930 BC. The northern kingdom was then known as Israel, although she'd also been called Samaria and Ephraim, same, same area of land, same sort of, sort of people. And the southern one was known as Judah. Israel lasted about, until about 720 BC when she was overrun by Assyria and lost her independence. And Judah followed round about 590 BC, 100 and odd years later, falling into the hands of Babylon. The last king of Judah was Zedekiah. That was the name given to him, not, not his uh, birth name. The name given to him by, by, by Nebuchadnezzar, I think. Who having rebelled against that king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, he was captured in 588 BC, had his eyes put out, awful isn't it to think of that, his eyes put out, and he was kept as a captive in Babylon for many years. In Babylon with many of his own people, there he was. King of Judah, sightless, sunless, his children have been killed, almost friendless. But after this the land was controlled by other foreign overlords. Although the Jews were allowed to live there until the Hadrian Edict of 135 AD. Adrian who built the wall on the southern part of Scotland round the boundary with Cumberland and, and Northumberland to keep the Scots out. It doesn't work does it? But that's what he did it for. 
he passed an edict which expelled the Jews from the land of Palestine and he ploughed the area of Jerusalem or parts of it and salted it with salt to make it infertile that was done after yet another revolt, revolt by the Jews against Rome and he said he'd had enough we'll get rid of them so a de de decree was to get them out and anybody living in the land after the decree after they had a chance to obey it was to be put to death that wasn't actually enforced but the bulk of the people were pushed out of the land some small number managed to turn the land but it remained in force for many many years and the vast majority of Jews did not live in the land they had once owned and then about a thousand years later or so, give or take a view the church came on the scene a very vigorous and powerful people um, a lot of them fought on horseback and had mounted archers which was a unique thing for them they were highly successful and they took over the whole area and they didn't seek to enforce the edict they were a more relaxed people in some ways if the people behaved did as they were told and paid their taxes their presence was largely ignored just get on with it so much of the Jews there were okay the remainder the, the bulk of the population of Jewry were scattered all over the globe and they continued to look to the time when they would return to the land of their fathers that was a, a trying thing for them all along and then in the latter part of the 19th century a movement was formed called the Zionist movement led by a man to a large degree well not him but Theodore Herzl who was an Austrian Jew he stimulated this sensation that we want to get back our own land the Zionist movement and they were focused on obtaining a homeland for the Jews in what had then become known as Palestine now it's important to realise that not all Jews were Zionists and not all Zionists were Jews there was a man somebody will know him General Ordwin Gate of Chindit fame was a British officer a regular British officer trained at Sanders and so on his parents were Plymouth Brethren from memory and he'd been brought up with that background and he was a, pa a passionate Zionist and he helped to um, form Jewish fighting groups in Palestine to defend themselves uh, against attacks by the Arabs and he used his military knowledge to do that he was killed in 1944 wasn't he in, in Berlin but despite serious opposition within Jewry the Zionist movement flourished and it mobilised opinion in favour of setting up Jews in Palestine other areas were suggested there were plenty of open space all over the world you can have some of that but they wouldn't have them Kenya was a, a favourite place proposed but they wouldn't have any of that they wanted some part of Israel that was all that they would accept and in the early years of the 20th century that's 100 years or so ago small numbers of Jews began to return to Palestine and they founded agricultural settlements known as kibbutzes or kibbutzim I think that's the plural and they began to work to make the land blossom again and they did that by purchasing land from local Arabs and their efforts began to succeed so some of the land that's owned by Israel now is land that they bought it's pretended that they pinched it but that's not true they bought some not all of it perhaps but they bought some of it from men Arabs who were willing to sell because they didn't want the flag of of uh, fertilising their land. In 1917, the British government issued the Balfour Declaration. That was because of the work of a, of a scientist and 
chemist, I think he was in, in Manchester, a man named Kime Weitzman, who provided an alternative in gun cotton when the British war effort was foundering a bit, and they wanted extra means of explosive, he provided it. And the government were grateful. So they, they said, what do you want? What honour do you want? didn't want an honour. I want a declaration that you'll help the Jews to get back to their own land. And that led to the Balfour Declaration, which indicated that the British government favoured the establishing of a national home for the Jews in Palestine. There was a caveat, that's not to make it difficult for those people who are not Jews, who are still in the land, they had to be treated properly. But they were to give some of the land to the Jews. And when the Great War ended, the League of Nations gave Britain the mandate to govern Palestine and adjacent areas, and many Jews began to return. At the same time, of course, you may have heard of this, there was a, an agreement called the Sykes-Pichot Agreement. British diplomat, a French diplomat, the French muscling in, they'd done that to do it, but, but they wanted their share, so they got Syria and Lebanon. That went to, uh, to France. Britain got the lower part, Palestine and Jordan and so on. And uh, many Jews began to return. Then came in the early 30s a severe persecution of Jews in Europe, mainly in, in Germany but also elsewhere, orchestrated by the Nazis. And that provided a massive impetus for Jews to leave those places in Europe where they'd been comfortably settled for several generations. There were plenty of Jews who had served in the armed forces of Austria, of Germany, of Russia and of other places, some with great distinction and heroism, but they were treated just like anybody else. They were Jewish, they had to be muscled out and they fled. And they went to other lands, some came to Britain, some went to America, some to Australia and so on, some to Argentina, but many went to Palestine. And following World War II, the numbers wanting to get into Palestine increased and eventually the position which can now be seen was reached with millions of Jews in the land, now about 6.7 million. Now those facts can be established by a little research. What is not widely understood, you will understand it, but the ones outside won't. What's not widely understood is that Israel's exile from the land was foretold by God before they entered into it in the first place, as a people that is. In Deuteronomy 28, verses 64 to 68, we're not going to turn it up, we have a lot to tell you, so we'll just put that in your mind. We can read the final aspect of the punishments which will be inflicted upon Israel for national disobedience. And if you doubt that, then look at the first two verses of that particular chapter. Deuteronomy 28. They refer to the blessings which will come upon Israel if they are obedient to the commands of their God and hearken to his voice. And then in verses 13 to 16 are listed the blessings which will follow obedience. They're specified. And as you can see for yourself when you look at it, these are indeed great. And verse 14 underlines the conditions which would lead to these blessings. They need to be obedient. They need to believe their God and to do what he tells them. And then verse 15 of that particular chapter, Deuteronomy 28, goes on to give the other side of the coin. If they do not hearken to God, and are disobedient, this is why they were coming across the wilderness, having left Egypt only a matter of a year, a year or two before. If they refuse to obey God's commands and statutes, then they will be subjected to curses. And these curses are also specified, and they occupy from verse 16, right through the chapter to the end in verse 68. And the last section of curses relate to their being scattered throughout the earth, finding no ease and with their lives hanging in doubt day by day. And verse 67 refers to them wishing their days away. 
When they wake up in the morning, oh, I wish it was night. When they go to bed, no, oh, I wish it was morning. The situation they were in, the plight was so terrible, they were wishing their lives away. And that was fulfilled in the concentration camps organised by the Nazis in the 1940s, and perhaps a bit before that, maybe in the late 30s. Now this prophecy was given to Moses shortly before he died. And then Joshua led the people into the land of Canaan around about 1450 BC. This is not the only place where we can read these predictions about what would befall them in the case of disobedience. Because a similar testimony is given in Leviticus 26 verse 33. That was probably written about 30 years so years before Deuteronomy. Psalm 44 verse 11 speaks of the people being scattered amongst the heathen, referring to the Assyrians taken off many from Israel and from Samaria that is into captivity. That was to one degree by a man named Tiglath Pileser III. That's the name to conjure with isn't it? A big name, Tiglath Pileser sometimes known as Tiglath Pilneser. He carried off 27,290 in 722 BC. Others I have deported previously. While Sennacherib claimed he cast off 2,150 captives from Israel. Although my Bible dictionary says that they were mainly from Judah. Now this fact of the displacing of many from the north was a solemn warning to those of Judah living from the march to the south. Essentially take heed. What's what's happened to them? And you obey. They've been carted off because they were disobedient. Learned the lesson. The warnings of exile through Moses were over 700 years prior to the exile's beginning. In the case of the northern kingdom and probably 800 years or more in the case of Judah. Israel was never restored. But around about 530 BC, Judah began to return, after a fashion, not, not fully and entirely, to join the rule of Persia. They were a mild lot of the Persian in many ways, and one of them was the son of a Jewish woman. I think it was Cyrus, who was the son of Esther. So he had a sympathy to Jews to begin with anyway. But though punished and disciplined by the exile, Judah still hadn't understood why she had suffered, and she continued to be a rebellious self, not just to God, but to all those powers who've got any control over them, they were difficult to rule, rebellious, stubborn, obdurate people. She rejected her Messiah and handed him over, with no king but Caesar, they said, rejected the Lord Jesus, handed him over to the Gentiles of Rome for execution by crucifixion. She, she had instigated and orchestrated that death. And within 40 years of that terrible act, Judah was scattered abroad by Rome, as we said. Now we know that the Jews are not the only people dealt with in that sort of way. Deportation. We have seen it, those of my age, and not, not much less than that, have seen that in, in the 1930s and 40s. Russia deported, deported all sorts of people. Break down the, the connections. Get them out of the way. Make them more easy to control. Russia did it. Assyria did it many years ago as an instrument of policy. The Assyrians didn't just do it. They did it to break the connection with people who they defeated, to get away from the land that they had control at one time, and break down the desire to be rebellious. They did that systematically. That made them more tractable. And Babylon probably did something similar. Designed to um, prevent repeated revolts by the Jews and by others, rather than as an instrument of colonial policy. So Judah's fate and Israel's before her were not unique. Conquerors often disposed of the conquerors, conquered that is, in any way they thought fit. We've won, we can do what we like. 
That's the common human idea, isn't it? Not, not so much now, but it's still there. What is unique, however, is that the law scattered abroad for over 2,000 years, much more in, in Israel's case, 2,500 plus in her case, the people have remained distinct. Other peoples, so scattered, have tended to be assimilated. Make the best of what you've got. And they've lost their distinctiveness. The Jews have remained as Jews with what little assimilation. We know that some have assimilated. Some have uh, either married Gentiles or converted to Gentile uh, beliefs and have left their roots, changing from Judaism and so on. Benjamin Disraeli, you'll have heard of him, two or three times Prime Minister of England, uh, Britain, in the 1880s and so on, a favourite of Queen Victoria's. He changed from Judaism to Anglicanism. Whether that was done because he was convicted or whether it was for convinced, I don't know. It made it easy for him to make his way in politics to become Prime Minister and a favourite of Queen Victoria. The return of many thousands of Jews to the Holy Land, hundreds of thousands really, may have been a few million, is a remarkable thing in itself. Now I cannot think of one of the people, I may be wrong in this, but I read a lot of history, and I can't think of one of the people which have been scattered abroad for centuries from their own land in in Israel's case, millennia, several thousand years, and has then returned to its ancient homeland. And we know that not every Jew is back in Israel, and we know that not every Jew believes in the God of their fathers, but around one in three are back in the land, and the rest will return, those who are still alive, before many more years have, many more years have passed. Now what has happened is not just by chance, it's not what just about the Jews, the clever people, it's nothing to do with that. God has declared that as he would scatter them into exile, so in the future time when he was ready, he would bring them back. And there are several places where this is plainly declared. We'll look at just one or two of them. We'll look at um, Jeremiah chapter 30. Too big for me to The feet won't touch the ground on this. But i keep them on the run. Jeremiah 30 in verse 3. If Olga could see me now, she'd laugh. Because she sees my legs swinging off a seat and said, look at that, he's only got little legs. But, there it is. Jeremiah 30, verse 3. We're looking at the promise for being brought back to the land that had been promised to their fathers many years before. The Lord, the days come, saith the Lord, then I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel and Judah, saith the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. Bring again, I'll take them back into captivity. It's a Jewish idiom for causing it to finish. Restore the people to the land. This restoration of their fortunes, as the later verse shows. I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. It doesn't matter what the United Nations say. It doesn't matter what America and Britain say, or anybody else, the Arabs and all the others. God has said this will happen, and we've seen it begin to happen. It's not finished yet. There's a lot more to go. Verse 8 says that in that same chapter that their oppressors will be dealt with. Verse 9, that Israel will serve the Lord thy God under the kingship of Jesus. They're spoken of as David. Not King David, but David the Beloved. Uh, whilst the next verse makes it plain what was and what is to come. 
they were to be saved from afar from the land of their captivity or lands plural really and return and that they will be in rest quiet with none making them afraid and verse 11 concerns God saving Israel making a full end of those nations where they had been scattered but they had been in receipt of mercy but not left unpunished <coughs> they were punished they would still be punished for their disobedience but the time has come and we're now seeing it for God to gather them back the same sort of thing occurs in Jeremiah 31 in verse 23 how long sorry that's verse 22 thus saith the Lord of hosts the God of Israel as yet they shall use this speech in the land of Judah and in the cities thereof when I shall bring again that captivity the Lord bless thee O habitation of justice and mountain of holiness and there shall dwell in Judah, Judah itself and in all the cities thereof together husbandmen and they that go forth in flocks and chapter 32 of Jeremiah verse 44 32 to 44 rather not, sorry it's verse it's chapter 31 verses 32 to 34 continue the same sort of thing um, I've got the wrong chapter yeah it is, it is actually chapter 32 it runs down from verse 38 onwards I'll give them one heart, says verse 39, and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and of their children after them. And I'll make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. And so it continues down to the end of the chapter as to how they will be treated. They will be restored to their land. It's interesting to see that that what's happening and what has happened already and what's still happening is all under the hand of the eternal deity they're being bought, brought back ready for what's to happen in the succeeding years another one is in Ezekiel 39 verse 25 that's after the destruction of gold which relates to the partial regathering of Israel such as has already taken place Joel 3 verse 1 speaks of their return and this chapter we said earlier on this morning that leads up to the battle of Armageddon it's a fantastic chapter is Joel 3 in fact most of scripture is fantastic they're brought back they become a trouble we know that don't we a troublesome stone says an earlier verse in, in Joel chapter 3 for behold in those days and at that time when? when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem so they're brought back and something's going to happen at the same sort of time I will also gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat and will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage Israel whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land the time not yet much in front of us just a little bit longer to go that's going to happen and the consequence of that is that the, the battle of Armageddon will take place the valley of Jehoshaphat I believe is down to the west of Engedi on the western shore of the Dead Sea and running up by the cliff of Ziz I know there are other views on that and I may be wrong there, there are many believe it's the little valley of Kegon down by the just south of Jerusalem it might be that well that's a very narrow valley and it's unlikely to hold the many thousands and millions that will be there but I may be wrong 
So this is speaking of their return and events which are going to take place. We can see other passages with a similar import. Amos 9 verse 14, Obadiah verse 20, Zephaniah 3 verse 30, Psalm 14, Psalm 85 and so on. We can look at them in detail when our time is flying away. That's modern Israel. We've looked at that, we've recognised that they're the descendants of the Israelites from long ago, who for around 1500 years lived in Palestine until about AD 70, were exiled on more than one occasion, and then finally were exiled again in AD 70, with some left until AD 135, and a handful left after that. We also recognise that the Jews back in Israel now are there because God has said that he would bring them back. So that's modern Israel. What about the ancient message? It's still there. It's enshrined in the people. Enshrined in their being in the land. We saw one important aspect of that message, um, the restoration of, of the Jews to their old home. That was extremely important because without their being back in their own land, the most vital part of the ancient message can't be fulfilled. But there is something more to be considered. And even older message to be looked at beyond the return of the Jews to their own land. And included in that promised return, which began to be brought about over a hundred years or so about, we saw a reference to their serving their, their Lord, their God, and their being ruled over by a king. And we commented on that when we looked at Jeremiah 30. That this king will not be David of the Old Testament. Here we're there. He'll have an important role to play, but he's not the king. The king will be King Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ who will be given the throne of his father David as the angel Gabriel promised to Mary in Luke chapter 1. And he'll then be involved in commencing the establishment of the kingdom of God in the land of Israel. That's the kernel. But he'll go out from that. Won't you speak? He'll go out over all the earth. A much greater kingdom than any which had ever existed previously. So let's turn to the older message we referred to before. We read it. Our brother Al read Genesis chapter 12 concerned Abraham the forefather of the Jews a Hebrew a man of faith despite being an idolater to begin with but one who was picked out by God and told certain things turn Deuteronomy over not very clever is it now the Lord has said unto Abraham get Abraham without the age Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation. And I will bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. That's pregnant with meaning, isn't it? That's the older message. The passage and the history it introduces will be familiar to all of you. It concerned a man named Abram, initially, and his wife Sarai, or Sarai, again initially, their names were changed a little, Abraham and Sarah. They lived in Ur of the Chaldees, this place is now in southern Iraq, some 150 miles northwest of the Persian Gulf, where the two rivers, the Euphrates and Tigris, entered not far apart from each other, into that gulf. And Ur, will be in the vicinity of a place that's now called Suk Ash Shuyuk, as far as my maps tell me, and it was on or close to the river Euphrates. It was civilised, highly civilised and cultured, 
a flourishing city with houses of two or three stories in height and good trading activities. And there, there are thousands of tablets, clay tablets in found recording transactions, some with square and cube root tables. Remember those when you were at school? I never did like them, and I suppose others didn't either. Maths wasn't my forte at all. But they were there, and these were here in early colonies. Some believe they were there to teach their children the same things that we went through in our childhood at school. In one house, an American archaeologist found some 1,000 clay tablets containing the business and legal records of the occupants. The main deity was Nana, the moon god. His consort, consort was Ningal, so the area was given over to idolatry. Abram was called upon by the Lord by Yahweh to leave his country, his kindred and his father's house, his whole paternal family and all the, rest, all the connections to travel to a land which the Lord was showing. He didn't know where he was going, but he did that which he had been told to do. He left behind that with which he was familiar. He moved to Haran, which is now in southern Turkey, and moon worship was prevalent there as well in Haran, so there was some connection there. He'd be familiar with some of the things going on there. He moved with his father, Tira, locked his brother Haran, son Haran had died, and Sarai, his wife. Now, some writers suggest that Abram and his family were familiar with Haran. Remember, had trading connections, we don't know that. But it seems that he lived there for several years, maybe 25 in total. He lived there till his father Tira died. And then he moved south as directed by God. But he diverted to Egypt when he reached Bethel, 12 miles north of Jerusalem, because there was a famine in that land. He moved over to Egypt where there was food. Egypt's got a very fertile area on the London Nile Valley and Delta. So there was food there, there was corn there. When that was over, he moved back. We can see back to Canaan, that is. We can see in verse 1 of chapter 13 that Abraham was a very wealthy man. He wasn't a guy just with a few sheep rubbing a living out as best he could. He was a man of wealth with many cattle, many sheep, silver and gold and probably camels as well. So we can reasonably conclude that he would have been a man of substance in early Chaldees. A man to reckon with. A man, no doubt, that has some connection with the, the powers in, in that city. That makes his obedience and to the call he had received all the more creditable. In chapter 12, we, we see several vitally important promises were given to Abram, as shown in verses 2 and 3 and 7. First of all, I will make thee a great nation when he had no children. Secondly, I will bless thee and make thy name great. Thirdly, thou shalt be a blessing. Fourthly, I will bless them that bless thee. Fifthly, and curse him that curseth thee. Sixthly, in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And finally, unto thy seed will I give this land. They're pretty impressive promises, aren't they? In chapter 13, most of the promises were repeated, and he was told to look north, south, east and west, because all that he could see was to be given to him and his seed forever, for, for an everlasting possession. Similar promises were made in chapter 15, verse 18, where the geographical boundaries of the land were to be given were specified, and the area involved is far greater than that which Israel now occupies. It is to stretch from the river of Egypt, there's a dispute as to what that is, some say it's the Wadi El Arish, others it's after the Nile, and I don't know which is the right one, but from whatever it is that's over in Sinai, at least if not beyond Sinai, across to the river Euphrates. 
something like 750 miles across. That compares to the 50 miles across in Israel now. And this is the land which is to be given to Abram's seed. But at the time those promises were given, Abram was childless. He was 75 when he left Aaron, and Sarai was 65. The promises of chapters 13 and 15 were some time later, and still no seed had appeared. 15 verse 2 tells us that. Sarah was still barren, still childless. She'd passed the time of childbearing by now. So in desperation she gave her Egyptian maid Hagar to Abraham as a secondary wife, so that they could have a child by that wife. And thus Ishmael was born, that caused further trouble. Abraham then was 86, and Sarah was 76. Something like 13 years later, when Abraham was about 99, and Sarai was 89, he was told by God that Sarai was to bear him the son promised. He was not to be Ishmael, who had already been born. Though he would be blessed as Abram's son, he was to be a son by Sarai. They both responded to the call to come out, both Abram and Sarai. Now Abraham and Sarai, respectively. So they were both to be blessed. A year later, <coughs> despite Sarai's initial not amusement and sceptical humour perhaps she laughed within herself that, that's not likely is it am I going to have a child now now I'm nearly 90 and she was rebuked for that but the child was born and this was the son to whom the promises would be forwarded move forward Isaac in chapter 22 some of those promises were repeated to Abraham and we particularly note in verse 17 of chapter 22 he's told his seed would be multitudinous, many, many of them, and they would possess the, the gate of their enemies. That indicates military success, doesn't it? So, that um, makes, that's verse 17, isn't it? In blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven, and as the sand which is on the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. That means a dominating possession, military success. Now those promises were confirmed to Isaac later on in chapter 26, and then sometime later in chapter 28 to Jacob, Isaac's son. So it went through three generations of the same family, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. These promises were confirmed. Amongst other things, and it's very significant this, in them... Through them and in their seed, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It wasn't exclusive to Jewry. It wasn't exclusive to Hebrews. It wasn't exclusive to Abraham's natural seed. It was there for any who believed. The most vital part of these promises relates to a single seed. True it is the promise includes a multitude of descendants from the three men, and that in itself is a matter of comfort and hope. But the most vital part relates to the appearance of one man descended from these three faithful men through whom all mankind without exception of, of racial characteristics will be blessed. Now Galatians 3 verse 16 makes it abundantly clear that this single seed referred to is the Lord Jesus Christ. And verse, 9 of, verse 29 of that chapter rounds off the matter completely by saying if you be Christ if you be Christ then are ye Abraham's seed and as according to the promise. So here we have the ancient message connected with modern Israel. Although at the moment not many in Israel will acknowledge 
that this is the case. But there's an even more ancient message than this, isn't there? When you go back and think about it, you find there's an earlier message given. It's in Genesis 3, isn't it? It's the record of the disobedience of Adam and Eve around 6,000 years ago. Having been told that they could eat of all the trees in the Garden of Eden, save one, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and that disobedience would mean death, they chose to disobey. All right, Eve was deceived. The serpent kidded her, and it may well be that the command uh, that you are not to eat of this had been given only to Adam, and Adam was required to pass it on. And maybe he made a bit of a mess of that, and maybe the serpent had heard that and had said, well, you know, have you told you the right thing? Thinking that if you eat that, you can go and eat the tree of, of uh, life and so on. But whatever it was, Eve was deceived. Adam wasn't. Therefore he may be guilty of greater condemnation. But Adam went into his eyes on. But whatever it was, they disobeyed. And they became sinners as a consequence, and therefore death-stricken. Now at the same time that the penalty for discipline was being invoked, deliverance was promised. In Genesis 3 verse 15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, that's speaking of the serpent, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The seed was to be the seed of the woman, not the seed of the man. The man perhaps had greater guilt than the woman. But the seed that she would bear, without the aid of human paternity, in due time, it's going on now a thousand years of the Lord Jesus Christ, born by the intervention of the power of God on the womb of Mary the woman, was the seed of the woman, not the seed of man. And he's the one that would destroy the serpent's power by bruising it on the head. Enigmatically displayed here in Genesis 3 was the method by which the eternal deity would use to set aside eventually the ascension of death upon our race. He could do it by organising it without violating it on justice and righteousness. He couldn't just say, oh, don't matter, we'll forget that, we'll do something else. He couldn't do that. Because all his creation is dependent upon his absolute unswerving trueness, integrity if you like. So he had to find a way to bring it about so that he could accept faith in his son. And here the same seed as was promised to Abraham and Jacob is promised to the Lord, is promised to him. And it's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. It was promised also to David some years later, the one who would rule over his kingdom. Christ who in the fullness of time would be born in Israel and by his perfect obedience would allow to be set aside the sentence of death in himself. He died because he had Adam's nature. He couldn't remain dead because he was sinless. He'd done nothing to deserve death except being born in the, in the form of Adam. Therefore God could with perfect rightness bring him out of the, out of the tomb to live again and to be eventually without much more, more time made immortal, made um, in the divine na divine nature so he came along through his mother Mary he had, he had Adam's inheritance and because he was totally being to his father it wasn't just that he should remain dead and his father could raise him to life again setting at one side his Adam, Adamic nature which was changed and much more than that that's important but more than that the eternal deity could use the Christ as the vehicle through which he could exercise his mercy without compromising his own justice and righteousness. The crazy is simple really. Trust in your own wisdom and strength and die and remain dead 
eternally or trust in God's mercy as exhibited in the Lord Jesus Christ and accept Jesus as your saviour he's more than a saviour that's important he's also an exemplar the one to look to the one to follow the one to pattern their lives on and that's true for anybody um, who wishes to know what God has revealed and what God will do so the ancient message which we can draw from modern Israel is connected with human salvation that's an important many out there have no idea about this they have a, a sneaking belief that if they behave properly and pay their way and so on as they, as they see it in their minds they'll be okay whatever's going on would be bad for me that's not what the scriptures teach it's the Lord Jesus connected with human salvation bringing into existence a race of men and women who though descended from Adam and Eve and thus made of the same disobedient stuff nonetheless endeavoured to please the eternal deity by accepting the grace offered to him through the medium of Son the Lord Jesus Christ then much more truth than that we know that but that's the essence of it all so we wait now wait for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth to bring into being the kingdom which has been promised what the Bible reveals is to happen relative to the future of our race is connected with modern Israel. That's a vital component of it. The Lord Jesus Christ is now poised to return to the earth to begin the events which will ultimately lead to the establishment of the kingdom of God upon the earth. That is an essential part of the gospel which he preached. Not heaven going at death and all that stuff, but resurrection to live upon this, this earth if found acceptable by him at that time. And that return could not take place until there was a Jewish state existing in the land of Israel. Hence the tremendous significance of Israel becoming a state again in 1948. That is one of the great signs to people that God's purpose was moving on quite rapidly. And it still remains an important sign. We can look to Israel and see what's happening to her and know that God is moving his purpose on. There's a lot more to it than that. But we will we'll conclude now. God will organise his kingdom through the Lord Jesus Christ in a marvellous fashion. And those Jews who have remained outside Israel in other parts of the world will be brought back by Elijah and others with him and King Jesus will call upon all the people of the earth to accept his reign or suffer the contrary. And that's in Revelation 14. The everlasting gospel. The same gospel as we're preaching now but with some little differences. Because then it is a fact that the king Jesus is back on the earth and is reigning from Jerusalem now it's not a prophecy it's not something which is being said will happen in a few years time then it will be a fact and will be calling for obedience and it will spread until it covers the whole earth accompanied by blessings the like of which man has only been able to dream of as all the enemies of our race are eliminated one by one it could be done like that but it won't be it will be done steadily and progressively until the last enemy will be destroyed is death, says the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 26. When that happens, the promise given to Eve will have been fulfilled, and that spoken of to Abraham concerning all the families of the earth being blessed in his seed will be there. We could give other details, but our time is gone. We could fill out the picture in greater detail, and it's glorious. It's a fantastic picture, but the time is gone. So we can look at modern Israel with all these faults and they're there aren't they? We can see them. We don't like some of the things we see them doing. And we understand why they're doing it but we don't like it. We can see it with all the faults and we realise that enshrined in their appearance 
66 or so years ago was an ancient message which brings hope to mankind which we can see developing because we've been blessed by God in giving, giving, in being given an understanding of his word through the words of other men cleverer than me older than me maybe and you may think that's hard to be but older than me we're grateful to them for their efforts and there it is modern Israel ancient message we hope you enjoyed that talk for more downloads information about what we believe and details of our meeting times go to our website ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk uk.